0: Good evening, kind listeners, and welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Tonight, we continue with Chapter 2 from Unchosen. The RAF has dispatched its thousand-plane raid in Operation Millennium, and tonight we find Petrina and her father cowering in their basement as an errant load of bombs falls on the village. Patrina and her father huddled along a damp wall in their basement, both looking up as the drone rattled through the timbers in their townhouse, down to the basement, across the floor, and then shuddered through their bones. Her father clutched her tightly, trying to shelter his only daughter with his own body. What is this, Papa? It is the English, I think. We were told to expect this. Expect what? Bombings. He eyed the ceiling warily, THE UNENDING DRONE OF BOMBERS UNDULATING LIKE GREAT WAVES CRASHING AGAINST ROCKS. BUT I DIDN'T THINK THERE WOULD BE SO MANY. WHY HAVE THEY COME FOR US? SHE ASKED. HE LOOKED INTO HIS DAUGHTER'S EYES, ROUND AND STUNNED WITH THE cacophony OF WAR SHE DIDN'T UNDERSTAND, BECAUSE SHE WASN'T TAUGHT HOW THESE THINGS WORKED, LIKE THE REST OF THE CHILDREN HAD BEEN, NOR HAD ANY OF THE REST IN THE GYPSY CAMP. HE CRINGED AT THE THOUGHT OF THE TENTS IN THE CAMP, NAKED AGAINST THE IRON SKY. "'Unlike he and his daughter, the families huddling in those tents had nowhere to hide. "'But there was no reason for them to fear, not really. "'He knew there was no reason for the Allies to bomb their humble village, "'which did nothing to fuel the Wehrmacht. "'The farms down the road, perhaps, but certainly not the village itself. "'But history had taught him that the chaos of war "'seldom hid its inexplicable turns from the innocent. "'Nor did it explain them all that well. "'They're not here for us, baby.' They're on their way south, to Duisburg, Essen, maybe even Cologne. Places like that, not us. Are you sure? He looked back into her eyes, desperate to calm her gaze with assurances. But he knew better. She couldn't tell what he was thinking, but did not say, at least most of the time. But they had long ago agreed not to lie to each other, because it was simply pointless. She would know. So he clutched her tighter, and told her the only truth he knew for certain. It will be over soon. She buried her face against his chest and gripped his shoulder, surrendering to the meager solace he could provide against the rumble that moment by moment leached the hope of living another day from her soul. Somehow, she knew she would die. Maybe that night, maybe another. But soon, he stroked her hair. Just breathe, baby, just breathe. Just as she was starting to steel herself against the suffocating blanket of fear that closed around her chest like a vice, the ground beneath them shook so hard that they both toppled over onto the floor. A horrendous noise, louder than the most furious clap of thunder, rattled her bones. Then another, even closer. Dust and bits of wood and plaster shook down from the basement ceiling, and they both looked up, holding their breath, as they waited for the house to fall in. As they stared, more rounds of thunder shuttled towards them, each one louder until so much dust filled the air that all she could see was her father and a few scant feet of the floor while she coughed and gagged. Then the intensity relented as the thunder rolled away from them south and into the field behind their townhouse. The last one muffled by the trees, and then there were no more. The drone of bombers returned, a comparative solace that only moments before terrified her, but now flowed through her like the calming hum of a Gregorian chant. She stood up, brushed the front of her dress, and checked her scarf, all to delay a sudden and overwhelming urge to run upstairs and out into the street. She didn't want to do that, but some demon inside her compelled her. Go look. See. Understand. She looked down at her father, whose dust-encrusted eyes blinked at her, imploring her not to go. I don't want to, but I must. She scampered up the steps, which were miraculously still intact. Even before she reached the slim entryway into their townhouse proper, her father was scrambling up the stairs behind her. They both stumbled into the front room of their townhouse and looked around. The round table still stood in front of the fireplace. The chairs were still upright. The unlit candle had toppled over, but otherwise their home looked as it did before, except, of course, for the dust swirling through the air and settling into the gathering coat on the floor. She nodded at him, smiling in the joyous relief that comes from escaping disaster. Looks fine, she blurted out. Then she ran out the front door and into the street to see a line of fires neatly marching from the north side of the village across the fountain square and through the townhouses right next to theirs. One bomb had landed squarely on the townhouse just two doors down from them. They had been spared by a few scant yards. People stumbled through the street, some bleeding, some in a daze, others, like her, simply wanting to see what had happened. Others rushed up, trying to help. A few crawled. She stared at a man, his legs shredded, clawing at the road like a fish swimming against an impossible current, unable to move. He looked back at her with vacant eyes. Bidding a somber farewell, he could not stop fighting against, but knew he could not avoid. Then he was gone. Her lip quivering, Petrina said, You said they weren't here for us. He pointed at the horizon where orange, yellow, and crimson flashes blew out great round orbs of air and sucked back into themselves to boil up and into the sky. They weren't. This was just an errant load mistakenly dropped too early. She watched the horizon, mesmerized by the fatal ballet of fire, the streaking coils of bullets from the small anti-aircraft guns, the dull flashes from the Flak 88s, and the ponderous, fiery cascade of explosions in the sky as they found their marks. Overhead, the bombers still came, an unending wave feeding the frenzy along the Ruhr, an unending spiral of death and screams. She wondered if it would ever stop. She looked up and raised her hand to draw an imaginary box in the sky. Where do they fly? he asked. Left, right, everywhere. He stroked her hair, then squeezed her shoulders. It will be all right. But she had to see more. So she ran up the street towards the fountain square and stopped next to a shop on the corner to peek around and see. There, a chorus of screams and groans and cries lashed out at her as she watched a hive of wounded villages stumble, trip, and crawl. She gagged and then stifled a sob, not wanting the impediment of tears to keep her from seeing what she knew would be important to remember and tell others one day. So many hurt and helpless, but then she saw him, a lone boy strutting out to an older gypsy man who had been caught in the open, now groping the empty air, silently pleading for someone to save him. The boy crouched down and tried to drag the man to safety. Petrina felt something then that she never thought would be possible again. A sweet aching swelled in her chest, and she reached out, as if she might touch the boy through the night that stood between them. His face was grimy with dirt, and sweat rolled down his face. He bared his teeth, tugged with all his might, and dragged the man towards a house. You can do it she whispered, watching the boy strain to drag the man through the medieval light of the fires lapping at the village. Just a little further. Her father looked over her shoulder and whispered in her ear, Who is he? She felt the calm wash over her, then the elating tendrils of a familiar warmth, and she had no choice but to shudder and feel the rims of her eyes moisten, grateful to know that a boy she had never met reminded her that the greatest of all things still lived within her. Hope. I do not know, she said, but he is brave. Peppy surveyed the fountain square, as those that could scampered up the stairs and cowered on his mother's porch. He smiled grimly, understanding that the porch, or even their house, would do little to protect them if any more bombs fell. Just as certainly, he knew that he would protect them. A black cloud of smoke billowed up from behind the house, and he ran as fast as he could around to the back. The house itself didn't seem to be on fire, but when he reached the back, he saw the rabbits burning. Some were still safely inside their pens, screeching and scampering in panic, but alive. Others were already dead, strewn across the mud and grass behind the house. Some were on fire, running for their lives. Peppy dashed to the nearest rabbit, scurrying across the yard, screeching with its fur in flames. The stench of charred rabbit flesh made Peppy gag, but he somehow managed to scoop the rabbit into his arms and hold it close to his chest, smothering the flames. He looked down, relieved to see the rabbit's eyes blinking. Most of the fur had burned away, leaving a sickly black and red patch of burned skin along its back. But it was alive. Peppy opened the door to one of the pens that was still intact and gently placed the rabbit inside. He turned around to see if there were any more that he could save, but all that was left were dead rabbits, some still burning, some smoking and charred, others just lying on the ground untouched by fire, as if they had simply died from shock. The rabbits tended to, as best as could be, Peppy rushed back to the Fountain Square to assess how best to help in the aftermath of the bombing hoping that there wouldn't be more. But if there were, he would face those, too. In the haunting light of the fires left by the bombs, he could see some villagers crawling in circles. Others just lay on the ground, gasping and bleeding. The closest victim was an older man that looked like he lived in the camp just outside town. He went to the man, and with a strength he did not know he had, Pepe hooked his hands around the man's shoulders and started dragging him back to his house. The man looked up at Peppy as he pushed along the ground feebly with one foot, while Peppy dragged him along the ground. "'I have to get back to my shop,' the man said. Puzzled, Peppy said, "'Do you live in the camp?' The man, still pushing feebly with one foot, looked confused and then said, "'I have a shop in Cologne. I have to get home.' Peppy smiled sadly as he thought of the man tending his long-gone shop. "'now a farmer who fed the brave men freezing in the east, "'men like his father. "'I think,' Peppy said in between grunts "'as he tugged the man along the ground, "'that your shop is gone for tonight. "'The man looked around as if waking up from a dream. "'Where am I?' "'You'll be home soon,' Peppy said. "'He looked at the man's legs. "'What he hadn't noticed before "'was that one of the man's legs "'had soaked its trouser leg in blood.' "'and that its foot was gone. "'The other leg was peppered with shrapnel, "'but the man still pushed feebly with his one foot. "'Just a little further.' "'All right,' the man said. "'Then his eyes flared in panic, and he said, "'I I can't stand up.' "'I know,' Peppy said. "'You'll be all right in a little while.' "'He had no idea if that was actually true, "'but what else could he say to a man who had lost his foot?' The man's eyes widened even more as pain finally registered. He started to moan, and his face contorted into a grimace that tightened more and more until the man finally screamed. "'Just a little further,' Peppy said. As he dragged the man out of the street, he caught the eye of a younger man whose legs were gone entirely. The man glared at him with narrow blue eyes as Peppy dragged the older man across the square. The younger man's eyes never left Peppy as he dragged the old man to his mother's porch, even as he clawed at the ground, trying to drag what was left of his body to safety. Finally, Peppy had to look away, trying his best to put the image of the helpless man with no legs out of his mind. When he reached the porch steps, Pepe had to stop. He wasn't strong enough to pull the man with one foot up the steps. His mother had already sent two of the girls taking refuge on the porch inside to get water and bed sheets. They descended on the man and carefully dabbed at his wounds with the cloth. Pepe felt a rush in his heart when he noticed one of them smiling at him. For the first time in his life, a girl looked at him and rewarded him with the soft glint that can only be seen in a girl's eyes looking at a boy she suddenly admires. He felt his mother's hands on his shoulder, but he pulled away before she could restrain him and ran back into the square to help a woman barely able to stand up and hobble down the street because her leg was shredded beyond recognition. As he wrapped his arm around her waist and tried to hold her up, he saw one of the older boys from the Hitlerjugend look at him from the shadows and then step out into the square. As Pepe struggled to help the woman back to his porch, he saw another H.J. boy step out into the street and then another. From across the smoke and fire and moans and shrieks of the wounded, he heard one of the boys call out, look at Pepe, ten years old and already he is in the field of battle. Come on, all of you, lend a hand now, do the same. One of the bigger boys ran out and scooped up the man who had lost his legs. Another hoisted a woman who had lost her arm over his shoulder and walked towards Pepe. The boy who had called out rushed up to help Peppy guide his charge across the street and into the waiting hands of his mother and the girls tending to the wounded gathering on the porch. The boy smiled and nodded approvingly. "You're brave, Peppy; I'll give you that." Peppy's chest swelled with both the agony at what had happened to his neighbors and the yearning pride at what he was doing to help them. Both overwhelmed him, and he couldn't stop the shudder that ran through his body from head to toe. "'as tears spilled out onto his cheeks. "'But you need to work on prioritizing,' the boy said. "'Peppy shot him a glance, knowing that he was being rebuked, "'but he didn't understand why. "'He was the first one to the square, "'and he was the only one who stood facing the bombs, "'refusing to cower in front of the enemy. "'Germans first, the boy said, "'nodding in the direction of the legless man "'now being hauled out of the square by one of the other H.J. boys.' Peppy surveyed the boy's face. He looked to be about sixteen, with a hard jaw and eyes that seemed to lash out at the world with a general sense of fury. He looked exactly like what Pepe thought he should look like. Peppy wanted to say something to defend himself. Then Peppy looked at the boy's shoulder boards. He was a Scharfuhrer in the Hitlerjugend proper, which meant he led a full platoon of boys fourteen and older. So Peppy grit his teeth and pushed his resentment back down into his belly. When they reached his mother's porch, Peppy helped the woman sit down, turned right back to the street and ran to the next victim, eager to leave the Scharfuhrer behind. He thought of the man he had helped. He once had a shop in Cologne. Now he worked on the farms nearby to help feed the Warmacht. German enough, Peppy thought. Pushing the thought aside, he watched for a moment the valiant german men still chasing the bombers through the cold sky in their bf-110 fighters he felt a knot in his stomach furious and ashamed that he could do nothing more than help the people of his village stumble away from the enemy the girl had smiled at him the hj boy had rallied the rest around him and while the pride that came from that was deep and burning inside him It was his newfound anger at what the English had done to his village that drove Pepe on, dashing into the street, dragging each victim he could find to his house for his mother and the gathering ranks of girls to tend to. It was that anger that drove him on over the hours and into the dawn until all that was left in the fountain square was the lingering smoke, the smell of charred flesh, and the haunting promise that war was now his destiny." The anger was hot in his breath and sour on his tongue, and all he wanted then was to find the day when he could hold a rifle and dispatch his enemies as they stood across the expanse, waiting in fear of his reckoning. The oath he had given in January, then just a string of words that he was supposed to say, now imbued his soul with the only truth he needed to understand. The words sang through him, and he would carry them with him as he waited for that first day when he would face his enemy and shoot back. On that day, they would be the ones who were afraid. Their screams would cry out into the smoke-filled air. Their blood would soak the ground, and for generations they would dare not set foot on German soil again. In the presence of this blood banner which represents our Fuhrer, I swear to devote all my energies and my strength to the Savior of our country, Adolf Hitler. I am willing and ready to give up my life for him. So help me God. You have been listening to Let Me Tell You a Story, copyright 2020 by Michael J. Lawrence, all rights reserved. Music by Pierre Kostoft over at makinamasound.com. Thanks for listening, and please join me next Tuesday at 5 Eastern for the next episode of Let Me Tell You a Story.